Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey, I'm Justin, the founder of Video Husky, and we're an outsourced video editing firm for content creators who just don't want to edit themselves or have had trouble outsourcing to freelancers or agencies. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Justin. So one of the things that kind of caught my attention about you is recently you've been showing these like really, really epic Twitter threads about some of the ins and outs to how you've been able to scale Video Husky. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you right now to just start sharing all that on Twitter? Yeah, for sure. So last year, 2022 was a bit of a sabbatical year for me. Um, we hired a general manager in 2021 for Video Husky, and I've since pretty much stepped out of the business. So last year was a year of travel, of fun. Um, coming into 2023, you start to feel a little bit antsy, I think. Uh, start to feel like you want to do something. And for me, one thing I've always wanted to do more of is write. And so a 90 thread in 90 day challenge sounded both difficult, but would be really cool if it could happen. I think today is the 12th. Is that right? Uh, or 13th. Uh, so 13 days in, it's still going harder than I thought, but we'll see where we land at the end of it. Awesome. What has been the most surprising thing that you've learned about since you've been in the middle of this 90-day challenge? I tell you what, people who do actual content creation for a living, whether especially if it's part-time, they are heroes. It is so much effort that goes into like coming up with good ideas, formatting things correctly, being able to convey the right story. And so, yeah, I just say for, I think I even like, let's say Video Husky's previous uh, video creators that we work with, it's like, man, I'm only doing this with writing. It's like, if you had to, if I had to film and um, upload and edit all that stuff, it's like content creators really earn their money. I can, I can say that much. But uh, the other part, I think is just, you realize that um, the more, the more you write, the more, the more you almost learn because you can then describe concepts and ideas better. At least I hope that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely relate to that. Like writing is almost an outlet to kind of clarify your thinking. Yeah, exactly. And like, I know it's kind of a weird tangent to go down, but I think especially with a lot of the excitement over ChatGPT and AI writing, which is really good on an output basis to get more stuff out there. It also, I don't think we'll ever really replace writing just because when you use writing as a way to think, as opposed to just publish, it's just a very, very underrated part of writing uh, and uh, yeah, underrated part of writing. And so I think people who continue to do that, even with the advent of tools like ChatGPT3, um, end up holding an advantage for in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the biggest traps and one of the biggest dangers as we all use ChatGPT more and myself included, is making sure you don't end up outsourcing your thinking. Like ChatGPT is amazing for streamlining processes, um, but if you're using that only as the to kind of replace thinking and just have a whole bunch of output, you can start to get in some trouble. What do you think? Yeah, it's like, uh, I, forgot, I forgot which article um, said it or who said it, but it was like, if you optimize, the idea behind it was like, if you optimize everything towards clicks then it's like inevitably every every what was it every site becomes a porn site because well that's what gets people people's attention and so in the same way you can apply that thing into like chat gpt if, if everything is about outsourcing everything is about more everything is about publishing then you've outsourced the soul of what makes something good and so 
the I think while you can't measure that, um, it's hard to measure and so it's hard to value. It's something that is really important for people who want to get to know your stuff, who want to understand your perspective. And yeah, and just there are just things that like uh, an AI cannot write. They cannot write about your personal experience. They cannot write about your thoughts when going through something hard or something great. And those are the human things I think most people actually appreciate. Yeah, you said something so good there, which is like if you use if you almost over rely on AI tools, like it's almost going to replace your soul. And you almost at that point just further commoditize any content content that you do have. So in that sense, it almost might be even more important these days to add more of your personality and more of your experiences and showcase that you are actually a human and not just a bot. Yeah, it's almost like another way of looking at it, right? It's like uh, writing as a, let's say, as an ex- as a daily routine or whatever is like exercising, right? It's like, yes, you know what? You can, you like, if, if you think about this in terms of health, you can choose to drink caffeine to wake up. I mean, I do. You can choose to take pain uh, killers to relieve headaches or whatever. And that in some ways is almost what like, I guess some of these tools can eventually be like, because like they're just instant pain-free solutions, but there is some value in struggle. Um, and if you're willing to struggle a bit in the gym, then you can avoid a lot of the challenges that come later on in the same way. If you're willing to struggle with a blank piece of paper, I think there will be a lot of benefits that come as a result of that. Yeah, so well said. And you kind of mentioned before that you were able to start writing more because you hired a general manager, the video husky. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that process and leading up to it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, Video Husky started in 2018 and we hired, I think I hired Fed in towards the end of 2021. And in 2022, we made it so that except for, I think, releasing pay, we only meet once every 90 days. So that's been the case for the past nine months now. It's gone relatively smoothly, uh, happy with how things have played out. And I think the biggest thing was coming into maybe year four. This is year five of Video Husky. Uh, I was already quite burnt out. Um, a combination of not hiring enough senior staff and the the reality that I neither resonated with my target market video creators, um, nor with a lot of our staff, because I'm also not a video editor, meant it was hard for me to bring the same enthusiasm day in, day out, because when you just don't click on you know the one thing that you're supposed to do at work it, it's just hard and so bringing in somebody with um number one who had worked in the space was enthusiastic about it but number two also had a lot more experience in running a remote larger firm i think was uh something that was good for the company but also good for me personally because by having last year to really take some time to think about what i want over the next five to ten years I think it's a very rare thing to have that kind of space. And so I'm pretty grateful for it. Yeah. Okay. So I have like 6 billion follow-up questions. So what you just shared there, first and foremost, you, it takes a certain level of humility um, and the ability and self-awareness to realize, Hey, I'm getting burnt out and maybe I'm no longer the right person to really be kind of leading the day-to-day operations. What was that process like of going from, okay, like starting to feel this way to hiring a GM and then training them up so that they can take over and do a better job than you were. So yeah, let's, let's work backwards from the, from 2021, I think. 
um at that point there was like just like one it's like maybe nine months post covid um like most companies we had like a huge loss of customers then built it back up um and around that point i started working with a coach taylor pearson um and originally i started working with him to talk about how i could grow video hosky but the more we talked about it and the more um he made me think about the future the more i realized actually you know what i don't really see video husky being a major um contributor like a major factor in my life um of course i want to be successful i want our customers to be happy i want our staff to feel like they have good careers um and everything that comes with that but the the reality was like i could not see a future i was excited where i was still running video husky based on the questions that he was asking me and I think when you're, at least when I was younger, you have the idea that like, oh, when something is successful, you want it to be both big and profitable and you don't have to spend a lot of time on it and you get all the uh, accolades that come with it um, and it becomes like a billion dollar company or whatever. But when I was forced to kind of narrow down the scope of what I want to really say, okay, what's the true thing that mattered? It's like, what really mattered? And I think this applies to 99% of founders out there is you just want to earn a good income with minimal hours. Like the two metrics that matter here are net profit or net income and the amount of hours that you spend, so money and time. And at the end of the day, really what most people want is more money, less time. Uh, and once you can define how much money that is and how much time um, you want to spend on it, you can start to work backwards to reverse engineer the business that you actually need. Yeah, that's such a great point. So working backwards, you kind of figured out, you know, digging, doesn't feel hard to figure out what you actually wanted. How did you go about going from getting yourself out of the day-to-day -day of the business? Uh, okay. So let's say what I actually wanted, right? Uh, because it's different for each person. Some people want to work 10 hours a week, some people 20, like not many want to work 40. Uh, I wanted to work zero. Uh, I wanted to be entirely out of it. And the other option would be to sell. Selling didn't sound all that great because the multiple isn't huge for um, a bootstrap, you know, like agencies like you and three, four, maybe at best five times earnings. So the, I didn't really want to go down that route. So the only option was to bring in a GM. To bring in a GM, you have to account for a good, especially a good GM. You want to think about their salary at minimum, minimum, you're probably thinking something like, um, say 80 grand. Um, but realistically, if you want somebody very good, you want somebody closer to the hundred mark. And then ideally, if they're very good, you want to give them buy-in. So you want to have some form of a bonus. Of course, on top of that, I also want to think about my own income needs, right? So it's like when you have to start to factor all these things in, you realize you need to have a profitable business. So that was the first part, kind of making sure we had our expenses in place. But then by kind of like realizing, okay, if let's say my income needs are a hundred grand a year. That's what you need in net profit. Um, if you assume a business can spit out, say, uh, fifteen percent in net profit, then a million dollar business should spit out one hundred fifty grand, and that more than covers my income need. And so, mathematically, that was the first time I realized it was possible. Awesome. So you figured out it was possible. What was that next step when it came to finding and hiring? A general manager the first step was communicating it with the team and just letting them know hey listen like i've thought about it i don't see myself being in this position um but making it a long term like a not immediate transition so i think i told them in march or april of 2021 we didn't actually bring fed our gm on until 
September, I think end of August, September. So it's like a good five month stretch to, for them to get used to the idea, but also for me to go and find the right candidate. At that point, we had already kind of buttoned down our procedures, buttoned down our, met, our like weekly meeting processes. So I think I was only still working like maybe 15, 20 hours a week. And with like, we went through a process of working with dynamite jobs. I guess now they're called remote first recruiting where they have to source the right candidate, um, help us do a bunch of interviews. And we landed on, on the right person, essentially, luckily on the first time around. That's great. So going back to when you first told the team, what was their response like? And did you have any safeguards in place to make sure that people didn't like want to jump ship? I think the response was relatively positive because in our case, our team was really young. Uh, I think with the exception of like one person, our entire team at the time was under 26, under 27. So like a lot of them were internal promotions on promotions, um, which is great. You know, like there are very, a lot of talented people who are younger, but experience matters. And the fastest way to grow is to, well, not to figure it out yourself. It's to take learnings from other people and other um, projects and apply them to your own so you can avoid those challenges. And so like, I was very real. I just said, look, like we, like it is incredible what we as a team together have built with Video Husky, but the reality is like, not only are is every are you guys inexperienced, I too am inexperienced when it comes to managing, hiring, strategic decision making, product building, and I wanted to bring in somebody with that experience. Beyond that, like I also went more into detail on a personal basis. Like I just don't see this being my long term future, because um, unlike the team who are generally all very dedicated to the craft of video, if not only video editing, and also filming on the side um, for their own personal projects, like. They, everybody knew that I, that wasn't me. Um, I didn't enjoy the process. And so when I told them, like, I just couldn't see myself continuing down this path, I think most people were quite understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned this a couple of times now where it's like, you're not a video creator. So what was the process like to starting a video editing productized agency? Like, how did that come to be? So... It's like, it's weird when you think about the overlaps, um, because like at any given point, one person wears multiple hats, right? So when I first started Video Husky, we typically worked with business owners who so happened to need video. But the primary, I guess, like I thing on their identity stack was a business owner. I resonate with that. I get that. I understand the metrics that go through your head. You think about revenue, you think about profit, you think about launching new products, you think about the amount of free, the freedom that you want. So I, I get all of that. Over time, though, the clients that we ended up attracting, that we ended up working more with were video creators. And just the the metrics or the currencies that they think in are just so different. Most video creators that we worked with are, for better or worse, workaholics. Uh, and it's incredible to me. It's like, I cannot believe how much, and then this goes back to our, like the Twitter thread thing, right? Because on some level or another, I guess I'm trying to emulate some level of that. But it's like the amount of effort that goes into creating these videos is phenomenal. And I just cannot imagine like how they've been able to do this for years on end. The thing about like how many, like not only how many videos can you produce, but where are the right spots to do it? Like, can we find um, the right like location scripting? Can we find the right editor to partner with? How can we promote the video? And so they, these were just like the things that like most of our videos creators think about. 
didn't resonate with me. And as like the company grew and we worked more and more with those kinds of people who like I really enjoy on a company level, on a personal level, it's just harder to like to understand what like to value, I guess like to value what to care about what they care about. Um, not because I don't want to, but just because we just care about different things. Absolutely. And can you maybe talk a little bit to what your current team structure looks like today? Yeah. So um, as far as I understand it, uh, I'm, I'm still due for my next three uh, meeting every three months in the next week or two. We have a general manager in place. He is in charge of everything. He has PL responsibility and the team reports to him. He works with a, he, he's in charge of most of the client, uh, like lead attraction and client acquisition. So that's, I think his primary focus. Um, he has a product manager under him. He has a operations manager under him. Uh, and he also has a hiring manager under him. And so those three individuals typically keep the, you know, the daily or weekly operations running, make sure the videos get edited. And if there's any emergencies, of course, they float up to him. Um, during a weekly meeting, from what I understand, but his main focus really is on the external aspects of um, bringing the new business. Yeah, absolutely. And how many, like you know, let's say ICs or editors, do you have on within the team? Uh, somewhere between forty and fifty. Got it. Okay, going back to your GM, what was the process like to train and ramp? him up so that he was going to be able to be in a place where he could be an effective leader? Uh, I think there's less training in this area, but what mattered a lot was figuring out what kind of person you wanted. And and this kind of goes back to both like the existing strengths and weaknesses within the company, but also like my own strengths and weaknesses. We talked about how everybody was young already, was younger. So I wanted somebody who was naturally older, who had more experience, who had over call it like a decade um, in the in the space, which Fed had. So I wanted somebody who's experienced. I wanted somebody who was who's very who's very active, for lack of a better word. Fed is somebody who can do like three, four, five sales calls in a row um, and then still do a team meeting on top of that. He's somebody who likes to get his things in line. He likes to get his dominoes in line and be able to push him over and um make things happen versus I personally have much more of a big picture, like, oh, I like this. I like that, which has its perks, but doesn't always mean things get done uh, versus Fed is very action oriented. And so knowing kind of like what I could provide uh, to a certain extent, what the company lacked um, and what the company also had, because what the company did have in spades was both editing talent and understanding of what creators needed. Um, so I didn't need, for example, Fed to be a video editor or to really understand like the technical aspects of video editing. I just needed, I wanted to hire somebody who was an action taker who could move things forward. And that's important because by kind of like saying what you don't want, like if you want somebody who has everything, they're going to cost you like a million dollars. Like that's very hard to find. But by kind of clarifying what you don't want and saying like, these are the key attributes that you want in the person, then you give like opportunity for multiple people to potentially be that option. Um, but more importantly, multiple people, ideally with one of them within the price range of what you can offer. Because at the end of the day, it's like, it's not like Video Husky is a VC backed startup, right? It's like there are limits as to, I don't know how much we can pay and stuff. Yeah, 
absolutely. And if you don't mind me asking, how do you keep uh, your GM like motivated knowing that you are kind of off and like out of the day-to-day of the business? So that's what was interesting. At first, for the first maybe four months or so, um, when Fed first came on board, we met first at first once a week, then once every two weeks. And it kind of got to the point where five months in, five, six months into that process, we just realized it wasn't working. When when we're meeting once every two weeks, like there is, there's on one level or another, like some pressure on Fed to be able to bring a win, right? It's like, you know, we have to celebrate something because it's like, you have to bring good news on because technically I am his boss. But at his level, when you're making strategic decisions, like the true fruit doesn't bear for, forget weeks or months. Sometimes they don't bear fruit for years. And so I think that cadence of meeting was not helpful. But worse than that is he, we would meet, he would tell me about a challenge. I would suggest a solution. But because I'm already so far removed from the operations of the business, my, my, my so-called solution is context independent, but context matters. And so I would say something, he feels like there's potential additional pressure to implement that thing, even though he doesn't believe in it rightly, because my suggestion doesn't actually make sense given what's happening on the ground. Um, and that caused, um, not that it caused problems, but it just wasn't optimal versus realizing um, by stepping away and meeting only once every 90 days, I gave him, like that provided Fed autonomy and decision-making like power to, to enact like things within his vision. Um, and I think if you hire the right person, like, don't get me wrong. It's like, yeah, you know, pay matters, bonuses matter and whatnot, but it's like, none of that matters unless the person themselves is already somebody who wants, who is driven, who has initiative. Uh, and so really, I think when it comes to hiring, the best way of phrasing your question is to put it the other way around. Uh, can you find somebody with initiative and then get out of their way? Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, going back to like, I don't know, year two, like right after COVID and you started to kind of get the business rebounded after that. What were some of the processes that you put in place, systems and processes you put in place then that were kind of the foundation to be able to eventually hire GM and step away? So there were two um, two main things that I think mattered. Um, going into COVID, we we reached seven figures pretty quickly, which was awesome. Um, I think within two years uh, of Video Husky starting to, yeah, we hit seven figures. Uh, maybe even a little less than that. But what we did not have was profitability. Uh, we were always borderline profitable. I was living in Cambodia at the time and I had another business. So I think I pulled like a $500 a month salary. And so, and was always quote unquote reinvesting in growth. Um, whether it's like hiring too quickly or investing in Facebook ads. Um, so when COVID came and that's and like we lost 30% of our clients overnight. We very quick, quickly, you know, started losing like $10,000, $15,000 a month. And we only had like 15 days worth of cash in the bank. So not a great place to be. So the first kind of change that we made was on profitability. Working, we worked with a company called Clever Profits. They have this cool methodology called the perfect PL, which talks about how a service-based business should allocate their expenses so that you have net 30% um, margins. Now, we have never, ever achieved that, but 
were a lot closer to that than when we first started working with them. So um, that was really helpful in kind of building up financial uh, discipline within the company. And since then, we now have proper savings in place, um, proper bu proper buffers, um, which are important because you know, like businesses happen in cycles. We had a crazy year last year, and you know, it seems like going or two years ago now, going forward maybe it's not so smooth, it's so easy. So um, having cash and bank makes a big difference. But beyond profitability, the second thing that mattered was implementing certain ideas from the book Traction by Gino Wickham. Um, and so not everything kind of like made sense, but the three that really stuck out was first making sure you have, you understand the metrics that matter to your business. Uh, second, assigning those metrics and the procedures or processes behind those metrics to certain individuals within the, within your organization, your org chart. And then number three, it was making sure the right people are matched up to the right seats. Um, and so Sometimes that like involves or changing roles. And sometimes that involves a certain amount of testing and then the realization of, oh, actually, you know what? This person is not the right person for the seat. And so um, go separate ways. But understanding what the key functions of a business are and then fitting them to the role, then to the individual is much better than the individual figuring out their seat and then what they have to do to execute the roles. Because an employee is a, is a, function of a business, not the other way around, or a staff member, actually, is a better way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're like, probably like the 12th person who has brought up traction in EOS. Um, so I kind of want to dive a little bit more into this. What were some of the things within that book that maybe you didn't necessarily agree with or didn't implement? So <laughs> the, I think the one that causes the most um, angst or like controversy is the 15 day stand up. Or not 15, sorry, 15 minutes stand up every day. Um, we never did that. I would that blows my mind. Um, to implement that, um, maybe because we had just had so many people, I could kind of see how that would work out in like a six person company, maybe less so when you have um 50. <laughs> uh, but I think there are situations where that works. It was just not something that I particularly wanted to do. I didn't want to start every day with a call. And so we just didn't implement it versus the metrics org chart um, and individual stuff that and weekly meeting that really resonated with me. Yeah, absolutely. And how long did it take to implement the parts of EOS that, you know, to get it in a place where it actually felt like it was working? Um, I think even within the first like two, three weeks, you could already sense like there's a difference, right? Because um especially when you're tracking KPIs, then you like you have to spend time thinking about it. The more time you spend thinking about something, the more it becomes ingrained in your like identity or your like your ways of working. And so by asking um, the certain like managers, hey, I want to know what this is on a week-to-week -week basis. What does that look like over a four-week basis? What does that look like over a quarterly basis? I think that's really helpful in providing perspective for um, our like our managers at the time, who, again, were quite young and it was a new way of doing things for us. Um, I'll say that was helpful, but at the same time, I also don't know, like for all I know, I could have been implementing things wrong. It's like, if you read how to do a deadlift out of a book, I'll tell you what, the only way, like the guarantee is that you're doing it wrong. You're definitely not gonna be doing 100% right. But even that, like implementing like 
it, let's call it 60% of the way was very helpful for us. Yeah, absolutely. And if you could like go back in time to when you first implemented it, um, is there anything that you would have changed about how you implemented it? I think if this was before I had hired Fed as our GM. So this is maybe like a year before. If I were to do it all again, I would have hired a operations manager. So in that case, not necessarily, I, I had one other senior staff member who was a marketer. Um, in hindsight, I should have been playing that role and should have brought somebody on who was more of, who was stronger with operations, who was stronger with getting things done. Part of the reason why um, I wanted Fed to have that was because we had a marketer on board. Um, so I think when you have like a company uh, like Video Husky size, you can afford to have like two relatively senior staff. Uh, and the combination is going to be one external marketing leads, sales driven, the other internal uh, fulfillment, making sure things are running, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the better combination is that you have somebody who is like your your more senior one person be like external, be the one who is the face of the company that prospects, leads, customers see, and then you have an operations manager being internal. And so going back to your question, I would have hired that person and have them be part of the implementation process because trying to do that at the same time that I was also like putting out a, a various VSOs and and um and marketing collateral and working with a marketing person to collect case studies. It was just a lot. And so I think if I had if I just knew fulfillment was being taken care of in a very kind of like straightforward manner, I think that would have helped. Yeah. Super insightful. You mentioned this before, but a lot of your kind of people who grew into management management roles were like first-time managers. Um, can you talk through some of the things that you did, whether it was coaching or resources or whatever to kind of train to be able to identify when somebody was ready to take a manager role within the company and how you trained them? So when we we started Videoski with two editors, and then over time, like within the first year, that kind of grew to like maybe like 20 and then by the second year it grew to like 35 maybe and now we're somewhere like 50 after kind of like six or seven editors i i promoted our first um like our essentially our like most like long-term editor became the first what we call pod head and as like we grew then we needed more pods and so i then asked him hey who do you think is most qualified to do this role he said oh this person so i said okay we'll promote nikki to be the next pod head. Um, and then I think over time, we've just grew to the point where we've had six or seven pods and they all report now to one kind of like operations supervisor. And I was relatively more hands off with this. And I was like, look, just whoever you feel is qualified, um, let me know, I will speak to them and we'll give them a test run. Um, and if things go well over a two to three month period, then they'll keep on going, which has its strengths and its weaknesses because essentially... Like it gave them a certain amount of freedom to implement, like to make decisions and whatnot. But it also meant that um, we weren't always on the same page across pods as to how policies were implemented. So certain customers would have would be able to get things done in a certain way. Certain other customers just couldn't because it depended on their pod, which is not a good thing or a good look. But if I were to go back and do it all again, I would have 
been a little bit more on top of that. Although I think by our third pod head, we started to build up uh, like a book of SOPs in this site called Trainual. And so that became like the long-term Bible of, oh, this is how like we do things at Video Husky. And that was quite helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And for people listening to this podcast who aren't familiar with the pod model, can you maybe give like a high-level summary of what that looks like? Uh, yeah, so a pod model ideally is like you have people who are doing the actual work. Let's call that the fulfillment team. In Video Husky's case, that's video editors in a, say, um, outsourced web development um, company. That would be your developers. Um, so what you want if you're scaling up based on a pod model is you want anywhere between six to nine of your fulfillment team within one pod, all of whom report to one pod head or manager. Um, the less, the better, because that way the manager can have time with each individual member. Um, and then from there, what you want from your manager in an ideal world is you want that manager to also be customer facing, that they um, that they can handle issues, they can jump on calls, um, they have the decision, have the authority to make certain decisions, um, which in our case, we didn't have. And that was a bit of a regret as to how we implemented the pod model, because just because of time time difference. Most of our um, editors are in Philippines and we didn't want to have people uh, start work at like, I don't know, like 3 a.m. and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that definition. With these pods and you were promoting people internally, did you ever get it wrong and have to, you know, I don't know, like demote somebody or fire somebody who was promoted into a pod head? Um, there were two instances. Uh, one, we... We have, there are a lot of um, staff within the company who, like, if you're a video editor, you know, you likely spend a lot of time in front of the computer. There is a tendency for people within our company to be more introverted and to be less, like, um, less social butterfly, uh, myself included. And so there are a lot of people who love doing their work, love their craft, but don't want to manage. And at the end of the day, when you're a manager, what are you doing? You're talking to a lot of people all the time. So we had um, one instance where we had a very talented editor. Uh, her name is Ingrid. We talked to her about it. She trialed it, but she just she just told us she's like, "Look, uh, I would love to develop skills within the company. I would love to stay with the company, um, but I just cannot see myself as an editor, uh, as, a, as a pod manager." So we said, "Okay, great. We'll we'll see if there's any other opportunities." And that came um, eventually. Now she plays a role where she kind of is an instructor slash onboards new editors. So that that played out well. The second was we typically high promote from within. So ideally, we want editors to become podheads. So anybody who indicates interest, we give a preference to that. But occasionally, it's not possible. So one time we did hire externally, which I think we've done three times. Two of them were fine. One of them was not. And it it just got to the point with that one pod manager because he didn't understand like how things were done previously and had his own kind of management philosophies, let's call it that, that were counter to some of the way Video Husky did things. It made for, uh, it just caused friction. And so we just like over, over like six months, just talked about it and said, this is not the right fit um, and moved on. And then we promoted somebody from within that pod um, and that ended up working better. So it's like, it's something that we found has worked to our advantage to maintain that. I think so people feel like there are opportunities, but also just when you have an understanding of how things are already done, it just goes smoother. 
Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So I could ask a whole bunch more questions. Um, but before we wrap, I wanted to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Yeah, for sure. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it about? Uh, I would write about how to go from uh, being an operator in your company to an owner. So it's like one thing I want to develop, um, hopefully within the next few months, is a operator to owner framework. So you uh, can step out of your business um, and not even work on it, but almost work beyond it um, so that you can create the unfair advantages necessary to build your next business or go for your next venture. Um, and that can only happen when you are in a, I think, business owner state of mind, as opposed to the day-to-day -day or even week-to-week -week of being an operator. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned quite a few books already within this podcast, and we're going to go ahead and add them in the show notes. But is there any one book over anything else that had the biggest impact on you and you think any founder, remote first founder, should absolutely read? I'll go with Pumpkin Plan by Mike Michalowicz. Um, I know Profit First is his most popular book and whatever, but Pumpkin Plan, I think, was the most impactful for Video Husky because it was the first time somebody introduced the concept to me of your top clients. Um, and so we did an exercise within the Pumpkin Plan, which was to rank all your clients based on revenue. And it's pretty crazy because the top 20% of Video Husky's clients um, generate 70% of our revenue. But even more crazy than that, they generate 250% of our profit. So to, for that to actually be the case, that means we must be losing money on almost all our other clients. We actually would have been a more profitable company if we just worked with that 20%. And so that was a really eye-opening kind of insight for me. And so once we figured that out, we really doubled down our own top clients and that kind of drove a certain wave of growth. Um, but yeah, I would say your best clients are not like 10 or 20% more important. They're something to like 10 or a hundred times uh, order of magnitude more important to your business than your smaller clients. And so deserve to be treated as such. Totally. Um, it's been really great chatting with you, Justin, where can listeners of the remote work five podcast find you online? Yeah. So most active on Twitter at JT, the number seven and then TH. Uh, I also have a personal site, justin10.me, where I blog infrequently, but every now and then. Awesome. And I will be keeping an eye out for that owner to operator manual that you mentioned. Yeah. Thanks, Jess. Awesome. Appreciate Thank you that. so much for coming on the podcast. Will do. And yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.